Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod is a Buddhist minister, author, activist, yoga instructor, and authorized Lama, or Buddhist teacher in the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism, and is considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. He holds a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School, and is a co-author of Radical Dharma, talking race, love, and liberation. Owens is the co-founder of Bhumis Parsha, a Buddhist tantric practice and study community, has been published in Buddha Dharma, Lion's Roar, Tricycle, and the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, and offers talks, retreats, and workshops in more than seven countries. So hi, Lamarad. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I've been really enjoying reading your um, recently published book, which is Love and Rage, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about um, some of the ideas and the teachings that you explore in that really beautiful, really honest and authentic book. Um, but before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, the story that led up to the writing of this book on anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I just, I think that like, it's, I, I think my whole life led up to the book. Um, I tend to, now this is like my second book, but this is my first solo book. Um, right. I realized that storytelling is really powerful um, in writing. And I think that we use our, we have to use our lives in order to, to tell stories, you know, to, to um, particularly in, in, in my work to tell how spiritual practice has changed my life, you mm. know, basically. And I think I really learned that from a lot of like confessional writing that I grew up write, uh, reading, you know, particularly confessional poetry, which is always really personal. Um, and then later on when I began to read Bell Hooks, you know, the way that she yeah. just brings her life into into the work and I just, I just felt really moved by that but you know looking specifically at love and rage uh, for me it's you know I, I come from so many different places at once right I grew up in the south so I'm really influenced by southern culture I grew up in a small black community so I'm influenced by blackness and being black and being a southern black person I grew up in the black church um which you know was not so much about religion for me, but it was about community. You know, yeah. it was about belonging to a community um, with an ethical framework. Um, and, you know, activism, community service really became a deep expression for me, you know, particularly as I got into my like middle teen years where I just felt really disappointed by the world. Mm. You know, I just felt, Disappointed, I felt overwhelmed. I felt as if I was born into circumstances that were not of my choosing. I felt really powerless. I had no agency. And so service and activism really became these expressions for me, vehicles really, um, for me to start creating the change that I wanted to see in the world, you know? But a lot of that work came out of anger. Right? It came out of, you know, it came out of anger. And not to say that, like, there wasn't authentic love and compassion. I just didn't know what that was. Back then. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I couldn't, if you asked me in my teen years or in my late teens, what love and compassion were, I couldn't, I don't think I could have defined that for you. But I know they were there. Yeah. Um, but I was, you know, really, I knew the anger, the frustration, the disappointment, the hurt was there. Um, yeah. And that really drove the work that I did. Um, and then you know, I get, in my, get into my 20s and really just doing activism, just really doing that full time. And really I was, I say this now, but I wasn't saying this back then, but now I can say I was really, really fortunate to actually start having a series of breakdowns, right? And that was about mental health, mm -hmm. um, particularly around depression. Um, and then that really opened the door um, to me questioning, okay, what else, you know, like what else, you know, and I was really concerned with freedom and liberation, right, mm -hmm. you know, and so when I started getting glimpses 
of Buddhism to begin with, I said, oh, that's really interesting. Mm. You know, that's a different kind of freedom. And also it's a different way of talking about, you know, things like love and compassion that I'd never been exposed to, you know. Um, and I was also really fortunate to be invited to begin that entrance into, into Buddhism through meditation, yeah. you know, which is, um, you know, meditation drives the project of self-awareness, -aware you know, and I think that's what Buddhism is trying to do ultimately is to create this foundation of awareness for self and then awareness of others and culture and society. So we begin to reduce violence and harm and begin to, we begin to increase love, compassion, kindness, generosity. Mm. Um, and of course, getting into that, I also brought my activism too into that. You know, although for many years I was exclusively training, you know, um, being excluded from the world or being, you know, kind of um, cloistered really from the world for, for several years. Um, and then finishing that training, coming back out and really wanting to bridge both my beliefs around social freedom with my new entrance into exploring and, and experiencing um, ultimate liberation. You know, yeah. so, so Love and Rage is really about bringing together like everything that I just mentioned, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, into an expression. I think that it's really important for us as we move into this kind of new world, this new age, we have to actually bring our whole selves yeah. to the work. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really powerful about your book, like you were mentioning before, is the role of, of kind of your own personal narrative at all, in it all, and the way in which you process, you know, the dimensions of an, several different, obviously, forms and orbits mm -hmm. of understanding in your own embodiment. Mm -hmm. And it's done in a really, you know, in a way that doesn't kind of absolutize anything. You know, you're always, you're always, uh, you know, your own personal experience is kind of the, the laboratory of, of how you hash out and, and how you integrate these ideas. And it, um, it leads to a kind of, I don't know, it's a really inspiring lens onto the Dharma and a, and a, and a way of really um, how we can all begin to uh, integrate the Dharma in our, own, in our own kind of, in a way that is expressive of our own unique the locus of our embodiment, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the things I, I notice sometimes is that often in, in contemplative teachings, mm -hmm. there's an, a, a kind of evasion of, mm -hmm. of identity, right? Because identity often is, is critiqued as something we have to transcend, right? Yeah. We need to like right. let go of the ego and therefore to affirm you know, qualities of our personality is mm -hmm. somehow a detriment to spiritual yeah. practice. Yeah. And so you're really representing a, um, a, you know, a different approach to the whole thing. And I'm wondering how you got there yeah. and, and yeah. How, to, how you look at that. Well, you know, I think what you're really um, kind of touching into is the importance of the earth. Mm. You know, so when I talk about the relative and the ultimate, I'm often thinking about the conversation between earth and heaven. And I think that when we come into spiritual practice, we want to go to heaven, <laughs> you know, because the earth is like really boring. It's a lot of struggle. It's a pain in the ass. Who wants to deal with the earth, right? Yeah. The, the, or the relative, right? Let's just go straight to heaven. That's the bypassing that you're, you're pointing to. It's like, let's just skip, skip over identity and, you know, these issues that seem really mucky and, you know, and really dirty and cumbersome. Let's get over that and just go to heaven. But you have to earn heaven, mm. you know? And then that's what I, you know, talk about that relationship of like how I came into trying to understand these, these issues. Well, it began, you know, early on growing up in church and being taught that like you have to earn your right to go to heaven, you know? And I, I bring that philosophy and that, that perspective into the work. You know, it's like, okay, I, I just can't say that I'm going to heaven, yeah. you know, or I got a simple belief. Yes. Yeah. 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 I just can't believe my way to heaven <laughs> or nor can I just call myself a good person and think that's going to do it. Yeah. You know, there's work that's required and that work is about actually being in the world, being on the earth. And then 
as we walk through these issues related to the relative, related to earth, related to identity, related to living in community, then we begin to see snippets and, and visions of the ultimate. And the ultimate isn't about going up, it's actually about going forward into yeah. relationships, you know, into situations, but moving into these things with an openness, with a generosity, with a loving, and that spaciousness that opens, then you begin to touch heaven, you know, and you haven't gone anywhere. Like you're still right here in the world, doing the work of being in the world, but you're experiencing the spaciousness from love and compassion and generosity, and, and you're still struggling, you know, and I want people to know that and see that in my work. It's like, Yes, I experience a lot of benefit from my practice. I've been at this for a while now, but I still struggle, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that spiritual teachers, and I'll just like, you know, really limit this to like, you know, Buddhist teachers, meditation teachers, really, they pull a con <laughs> on folks, you know, because we, we can show up um and teach in a way that suggests that we have everything figured out yeah you know and that puts a kind of stress on folks who are like oh my god (laughs) you know like you have all this figured out like how do i get there you know and i've never had that privilege Mm. you know because i've been black and queer and fat and all this stuff and so i've walked into a space and there's already been aggression and violence towards me you know, and I've had to respond to that. You know, I've had to really fight my way to have a space, you know, um, in this field, this, this, whatever we want to call it, in the arena of spiritual self-care, you know, mindfulness, whatever we, we call it. But I've had to fight to be myself, and that's made all the difference. Yeah. You know, my platform is literally me being myself. Yeah. Well, and you also, I feel like there are other um, spiritual teachers kind of um, offering, I don't know if it's, if it would be right to call it a new wave of spiritual Mm -hmm. teachers, but certainly a spiritual teachers that are open and and authentic about Mm -hmm. their own personal struggle. And that becomes, you know, an inspiration, a spiritual inspiration for people rather than the model that you're describing before, where it's like, I am up here, you are down there. Maybe if you do enough work, you can be, you know, up here with me but you will you know and then there's this uh, relationship of subservience that is um you know and of course that's leading to all of these scandals and everything that's been happening over the last several years do you what do you feel do you feel like we're evolving you know as a spiritual Mm -hmm. community of course there are many aspects and Mm -hmm. many different communities within that community but Mm -hmm. um do you think generally we are moving away from this tendency to hierarchize, hierarchalize, is that Mm -hmm. the word? (laughs) The relationship between, you know, teacher and mentee? Yeah. um, I think there's a part of a kind of a need that we may consciously or or unconsciously have that we want to give our agency away because we think it's easy. We want someone to make decisions for us. And I think that comes out of the ways in which many of us in this country come out of, you know, Judeo-Christian, Abrahamic religious communities where there's a God and the God's making all the decisions, you know? Like I was just reading the news this morning and this article where, you know, in the South, all these churches are opening up, but they're having to close again because of outbreaks. And this one minister was like, you know, if God wants me to get COVID, you know, I get it. If he doesn't want me to get it, I won't get it, you know? And I just read that, you know, and I just thought, like, where's your agency at? Like, at what point do you actually say, oh, like, I actually have a choice in how to protect myself and how to protect my congregation or my spiritual community? You know, so what I'm trying to do is like create the space where we're actually trying to practice agency right now. And I think, you know, even like further in your question, I think that like we're moving into a place where we're realizing that like we actually have to do something. Like we just can't sit at the feet of a teacher or a guru and that guru is going to bless us and help us and guide us out like God. You know, no, like we actually have to make decisions 
You know, I, I really believe that an authentic spiritual teacher in whatever tradition it may be, has to be a mirror, you know, functions as a mirror who is reflecting back our own agency, you know, getting us to understand that like we have choice, like we have to start making choices to be free, to be healthier, to be safe. You know, we have to be, we have to start making choices to create the realities, to create the conditions that we're living in that are conducive to, to happiness, to safety, to, to everyone getting what they need, mm. you know? And, and this is the problem. This is a huge problem. I talk about this all the time is that there are a bunch of teachers, be it, you know, again, mindfulness, meditation teachers, Buddhist teachers, what have you, yoga teachers as well, who really get off on being seen and being worshiped. Yeah. You know, they get off on people, you know, offering their agency. Yes, yeah, a fetish, you know, and a lot of teachers come into this realm with a lot of unmet needs. And then they begin to use their students, their spiritual communities to have unmet needs met, which are actually not ethical, you know, yeah. to have those needs met, you know. And so there's a thin line, you know, and that thin line gets really eroded when you start talking about power. You know, um, so I see, I see, a, you know, you talk about like all the misconduct and all the drama and the chaos that happens. It happens because one, you know, there are many reasons, but I'll just point out one, that the spiritual teachers, the teacher themselves, they're, they're not getting their basic needs met outside of the community. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of insecurity or they have things that, you know, that they realize they can get really easily met. Yeah. you know, from, from their communities. And secondly, it is the maturity of practitioners. You know, there has to be more education about how to relate to a teacher, even education around going to a yoga class and following your favorite yoga teacher, even though you just go to class, you know, a couple of times a week, but there's still education that has to happen. There's a transference of power that's still happening, you know, and I think that has to be spelled out for yeah. us now. Yeah. So you're talking about, um, you know, how we have choice and how, you know, there's work mm -hmm. to be done and, you know, two kind of, at least two directions or two layers of that is our contemplative practice and mm -hmm. then, you know, our spiritual practice and then our, you know, essentially anti-oppression work, work that addresses the earth, as you say, you yeah, know, our experience yeah. here, the, you know, the constellations of injustice that are perpetuating uh, yeah, systems yeah. of oppression in various ways. Um, so a lot of people are either on one side or the other, you know, on one side, people are think, think like, I have to just attend to this world as it is. And like, I don't have time to navel gaze. And then there's others who think like, this is the real work and like, and the anti-oppression work will happen as a result of everyone practicing spirituality. You know what I mean? They think yeah. that like, oh, that stuff will kind of, it's like trickle down spiritual yeah. practice, you know? Yeah. Um, so what is your, you know, um, approach to the relationship between these two things yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as what we have to do? Well, you know, my, my, that relationship is really expressed in the basic ethic that I have is that, you know, justice is a spiritual practice. Yeah. You know, and I think that we, the problem that we're having is that we're, we're separating the two and thinking that we have to do work to bring them together. I don't do that. I just start from the basic premise. It's like, okay, the things that I do to disrupt violence in the world is actually an expression of my spiritual practice. And vice versa, my spiritual practice is also an expression of disrupting violence in the world. You know, and again, these, these narratives come out of dominant communities. They come out of white you know, hetero, cisgender, you know, moneyed, affluent communities who actually are not really close to social struggle. Yeah. You know, as, as these traditions made their way into the West, particularly here into America, like you can read book after book and watch all these documentaries like Wild Wild um, Country, you know, which like people <laughs> ask me about all the time. Or, oh, really? um, yeah, <laughs> you know, or, um, or Bikram or the Bikram. Yeah. Um, documentary like they're 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 the same thing it's like basically these gurus come they get swept up by white affluent folks and then their dharma becomes a dharma that makes them comfortable right in the world you know to such an extent that they create cities and orient themselves and try to take over states 
<laughs> you know, but that's whiteness. Like whiteness is about conquering, taking over, assimilating, you know, colonizing. Um, and, and so I think that, um, you know, yeah, it's what we're experiencing now, and I hope that I'm a part of this, is a, a refocusing mm. of the teaching. Instead of like always wanting to feel comfortable, like I want to decenter comfort yeah. and begin to recenter discomfort because discomfort is where realization and freedom arises from, yes. not the comfort. Yeah. Like we don't get free, like Stonewall didn't happen because people were comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like people were really like, you know, hard pressed, you know, and that's where that momentum comes from, you know, and we need to remember that in our spiritual practice. I am so grateful for discomfort. Yeah. You know, before, yes, growing up, it was a pain, right? It was like, yeah, why am I doing this? But now I can transform that discomfort into realization to openness and to compassion. It's helped me to connect to the world in a way where I, where I begin to see the world not as full of like, I don't know, of evil people, you know, or, you know, assholes or whatever, right? I see the world as being full of people who are hurting, just like me, and people who are trying to do the best that they can with what they have, you know, and knowing that then my work becomes offering as many resources for people to start making the best choices for themselves to reduce violence. Yeah. I love what you're saying about discomfort. It's something yeah. that I think is really, you know, we're seeing kind of this, well, and it's, it's like you're saying, there's a refocusing. I think that we're living in a very uncomfortable time and, and you know, in many ways. Um, but it's interesting to see how, uh, people run away from discomfort or yeah. or seek out places where they don't have to, you know, they don't have to be uncomfortable by, you know, not, you know, having to kind of go in the sort of the difficult work of acknowledging their own um, complicity in, in various systems mm -hmm. um, and whatnot, you know, but when does, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on when discomfort mm -hmm. um, becomes violence right mm -hmm. or when you know like for example we're in a, the context of like let's say we want to have a dis difficult conversation with a trump supporter mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. it's incredibly uncomfortable to yeah. like navigate that space yeah. with points of view like yeah. that yeah. how do we hold space for the discomfort yeah. without without also you know violating our own integrity you know in the in the face of potential violence yeah yeah well i think there are two things in the question i think two really important things that i think folks really um could benefit from so like the two questions i heard was like how do you have a relationship with discomfort and not suffer, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then the second is like, and then how do you bring that to difficult conversations right. with people that you're just like, wish, you know, people you wish would just go to hell, <laughs> you know? Um, which like, quite honestly, like this is like, I have to do a lot of work and kind of like holding space for that, that sentiment where I could just easily say, you know what, they're like fucking, you know, you know. Well, you expressed that at the beginning of the, your book. You oh, know? absolutely. So, you know, you're like, after the 2016 election, I was like, fuck off, everyone. Yeah. Leave me alone. Like, I don't have space for you right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and to an extent, I still don't. Like, I don't know how much has changed you know, <laughs> since I posted it on Facebook. But like, it's, but that's all really nuanced and complex. But let me, let me get to the first part, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, when we're working to be in a relationship with discomfort, you know, for most of us, our relationship with discomfort is that discomfort consumes us or yeah. suffering consumes us. And what I do in my practice is that I consume the discomfort, the suffering. Mm -hmm. So I reverse that. It gives about agency, you know, and I go back to the teachings of the mind within Buddhism, which says that the mind is spacious and that everything that arises in the mind is an, ex is a, is an experience, you know, not like the solid tangible self-existing thing and so i've trained in that for many years now and so i can enter into discomfort and hold space for it and that's what i mean by consuming i hold the space for it by not reacting you know i just watch it i notice it you know i let it move through my experience right it's like clouds passing through the sky the clouds 
you know, it may seem like the clouds, if it's overcast, like it may seem like cl the clouds are like completely clouding over, you know, the sky, but like that's just the piece of the sky that we're looking at, you know, in another part of the world, the sky is completely clear, you know, so like that's it, like that's how my orientation to suffering is, it's like, yes, it feels thick and heavy now, but this is just one experience, and I just watch it and I notice it, so that's how I hold space for discomfort, okay? Mm -hmm. And if I hold space for it, it's less violent. Yeah. You know, and I'm not afraid of suffering anymore. I'm not running away from it. I just welcome it as a friend, you know, and I really, you know, I went through a lot of work to make sure that I expressed that in love and rage. So, so that's the first part. And the second part, okay, we're moving into conversations. And for me, when I am, and this is an active practice, I have to do this every day, all the time especially reading the news, you know, I say, you know what, this person that I disagree with, they're a person, they're a human just like me, and they're struggling and suffering, you know, and that's, that's where compassion comes from, right, it's that empathy that says, okay, this person's struggling too, you know, and then if I can hold that, then I can move into a conversation with folks, right, and I can say, okay, my question isn't about why you support something that I vehemently disagree with. The question really that I have for folks is, what do you want? Like, what do you need that you're not getting? You know, like it's, it's everything comes from a need. Like you're, you're, you believe in this because you need something or you want something, you know, I'm interested in like what that is. You know, and I think that there can be a lot of similarities between what I need and what people I disagree with need. You know, and I think some of the basic needs that we have is to, to have the resources to be happy, to be safe, to have access to the things that, you know, we need for our families and for our loved ones. You know, and I think that these divergent views arise because of, you know, the misunderstanding of what I have and don't have already. Yeah. You know, um, it's also a disconnection from the collective. It's like often it's folks who are not thinking about the world, they're thinking about themselves yeah. and about me and what I need or what I need and what my family needs or what my loved ones need. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, my orientation is about the collective. It's like, okay, here's what I need and here's what other people need. And so when I'm doing that work, then it's like I'm holding both my needs and the needs of others together. So I keep an eye on both. You know, I think sometimes if you, you know, you know, want to do really good work in the world, I think sometimes we're led to believe that we have to decenter our needs and put them to the side, which is really dangerous mm. to do because you, as we talked about later, you know, when I, you know, put my needs to the side, then I have unmet needs. And then I enter into relationships where I begin to unconsciously manipulate the relationship to get those needs met. Instead, if I hold my needs with the needs of others, I say, okay, here's what I need. I can be really proactive about getting what I need. At the same time, I can balance that with offering to others and making sure that they get what they need. And so it becomes, it's more like a negotiation that I'm making. You know, not a compromise, yeah. but a negotiation. I want everyone to get what they need, including myself, because mm -hmm. we have to. You know, maybe I can't get everything at once, but I'm going to continue working to make sure, you know, and then again, you know, we have to be really clear about what we need mm -hmm. as well. Not what I, I, it's not about what I want. It's about what I need. What do I need to be healthy and safe and connected? Those are the needs that I'm prioritizing. And what I want, those become secondary, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Okay, so I want to I want to circle back a little bit to um, anger again, you know, mm -hmm. because we're, you know, we're talking about discomfort. And um, one of the things that, you know, you talk about in your book is how, you know, anger, especially early on in your life, it was something that you 
you were uncomfortable with because you weren't allowed to have it as a black man. You weren't allowed to be yeah. the angry black man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, um, because now you're talking about in the book, you know, you're talking about taking care mm -hmm. of your anger. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that looks like yeah. and how, you know, and how what not taking your anger, I guess, not taking care of your anger looks like yeah, yeah. and what the yeah. ramifications of that will be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm still not allowed to be an angry black man. Too. There are still yeah. consequences, you know. Yeah. Um, and so tending to my anger, right, taking care of it means that I first recognize it. I acknowledge it. That goes for any emotion, really, you know, but anger in particular, because for me, I, it was really hard to reconnect to anger as I got older, as, particularly as I got into meditation, because growing up, I learned how to rechannel anger into passive aggressiveness, which I felt like that would keep me safe, you know, and to an extent it did, it absolutely did, it functioned in that way. So it just, it turned me, you know, it's, it's, it, it made me, that passive aggressiveness made me someone that I felt like was not, that couldn't be trusted, mm. you know, because I wasn't ever telling the truth, you know, and I was always avoiding conflicts and actually expressing my needs. I was, I, I couldn't do any of that. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And so I think that made me a performer. Mm in a way where like I could, you could be telling me something and outwardly I could be, you know, giving these nonverbals of agreement, but in my mind, I would, I would be like, you know, fuck you, I can do whatever I want. That's mm -hmm. just really misleading, you know? And, and so when I started practicing meditation, I really started having to connect to the energy of anger and creating a container for that to be expressed, you know, and part of that container meant that I had to learn how to experience anger. You know, most of us don't actually ever experience our emotions, yeah. you know? So when we start experiencing emotions, it's, it's actually quite liberating, you know, because you begin to see how emotions are, are composite experience. They're just like a whole bunch of things happening, you know, yeah. and once we experience, we can allow these emotions to have spaciousness and that gives us the space to make different choices and how to be in the world, right? And so that's all tending to, you know, when I do it with anger, that's tending to the anger. And so my anger isn't like this outward expression, you know, that can be violent or physical. It's really about noticing how anger is showing up in a particular situation and then asking myself, okay, what do I need right now? You know, and often what I need is to, is to articulate when I'm experiencing, you know, just um, I had a situation, you know, maybe two weeks ago in an interaction where, you know, it was really triggering, you know, and I kind of worked through the interaction with, you know, with this person by just articulating, okay, you know, I was like, you know, I'm really pissed off now. Like, this is what I'm experiencing, you know, but I can hold the space for that and still be in this conversation. So in a way, I talk, my, I talk to myself through this and I use that talking to let people know what my boundaries were, to let people know, okay, this is exactly what's going on, you know, so you know what's happening, you know, and as long as you keep that awareness, then it's like, that's a safeguard and to an extent it's a safeguard that keeps anger from completely taking over and if it takes over we're no longer experiencing if we're no longer experiencing then we start reacting mm. you know and we start creating harm instead of reducing harm you know and that's just and, and again like this is a very high, <laughs> high level practice you know again like I, i'm at the point in my practice where anger isn't it's not this antagonist. I don't feel powerless with my anger. I don't feel as if I lose agency. I've developed agency. And that's why I try to talk about in the book, you know, it's like, what does it mean to be in power, you know, with your emotions, right? What does it mean to like have an emotion arise like anger and feel as if, you know what, I can stay aware. You know, it's not gonna take me over. My anger is not gonna become my master in this moment. So, you know, um, anger is obviously a, 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 
a very common fuel for activism, right? And and you, of course, are an activist. And um, and obviously, the recent events surrounding the murder of George Floyd have triggered a great deal of anger. Um, and one of the ways in which you know you see um, anger being kind of unpacked or affirmed in the spiritual mm -hmm. community or just in community generally is. Mm -hmm. Um, is this idea of righteous anger. Right. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about righteous anger and if you see what you're talking about as something slightly different in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, how to approach the mm -hmm. utility of anger. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when we talk about anger and justice and anger in marginalized communities, you know, one of the things that we have to kind of look at, and I talk about this, you know, a little bit in Love and Rage, is that you, I'm trying to, one, create a container for the anger, right? And a lot of anger is not contained, you know? So that's not a judgment, you know? Like, uncontained anger is not a judgment. Again, like, we've seen liberation struggles that have emerged out of uncontained anger. <laughs> you know? um, so like, I want to recognize that and we continue to see that, right? However, over time, we have to move into containing the anger, you know, because it's not, it's not so much about the world, it's about us as individuals. It's about the reality that uncontained anger is deeply um, draining. Yeah. You know, it takes a physical and emotional toll on us if we're not tending to it, you know? And I think that uncontained anger, you know, particularly in response to injustice, which we would call righteous anger, I think it's important because it wakes people up. You know, like the, the, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, like it's, it's waking people up, yeah. you know? It, and I think people get it, like people are out on the streets marching all over the world. Yeah. You know, um, and that's a whole nother issue, the ways in which the world, other countries support us and we don't even know what's happening in their countries. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know? Mm -hmm. um, like we couldn't, you know, but, you know, we, um, so we're, so this, this, this anger, you know, it wakes people up. You know, it gets people's attention, you know, and, and then over time that begins to shift. It creates change. Yeah. You know, like, well, but what I was saying earlier, just a minute ago was that, you know, to be in the middle of a pandemic and still people are out in the streets working and organizing, marching and protesting like that. I think that's waking people up. Like people say, ah, this must be important. Like this must be like, really like a crisis for us to kind of break all of these like you know you know social distancing things and just hit the streets in a way that was much stronger than anything yeah. we've ever seen you know um yeah and there's no apparent spike from the from the demonstrations as well which i think is kind of inspiring yeah. well <laughs> it, but there's a spike from like these rallies that trump is doing right you know and that's documented. So, okay, so look at that, mm -hmm. you know, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, so, so there we have a responsibility in terms of our anger, you know, and it can't, we can't always experience or express this uncontained anger. We have to, over time, learn how to contain it. It doesn't mean it becomes less potent. Mm -hmm. Like my injury, my, my anger is like still intense. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, you know, but the the container is much larger. Yeah, to hold it. I want to read a quote actually about this because I think that what you're talking about in terms of containment is really expressed beautifully in 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 something that you say in the book. I believe anger is like a controlled fire. We do controlled fires in forests to create room and space for new growth and to fertilize the soil, but that fire can get out of control if there aren't any skilled people there controlling that fire. Mm -hmm. For us, if we have no wisdom, then our anger gets out of control and it starts burning up everything. I see so many people burning up everything. Yeah. 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 Do you, is that sort of expressive of what you're talking about in terms of, you know, a controlled kind of, yeah. you know, 
locus of anger as being necessary to create change and help to inspire change. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just burning up other people, it's burning up ourselves, like as the center of this, as the initiator of this. This is, you know, there's a saying in, in Buddhism where being angry at someone is like holding a piece of hot coal, mm. you know, waiting to throw it at someone, <laughs> you know, and the coal is like burning you. But if you throw that coal at someone, it's just going to bounce off of them and they're not going to yeah. get hurt, really, you know. And so I, I always hold that you know, as kind of an image in my mind. It's like, no, this is actually hurting me. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's part of like, you know, the kind of care that we have to start offering to ourselves. I need, what, what has been so beneficial for me is understanding the ways in which I harm myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning to, to care for myself through the, the expression of self-love. You know, I'm going to be doing a little more work on that in my next book you know, around self-love and so forth, you know, but. What's your next book about? My next book is about, so I'm examining how to be a bodhisattva Mm. in the world, you know, which I say that, but it's not going to be anything that people expect. (laughs) It's going to be like a book called Love and Rage. Like no one, no one knew, no one knew that that, this book was going to like. Are you yeah. problematizing the the concept of the bodhisattva as it's understood in other, you know, in more traditional ways? I yes, in a way, that's part of it. And secondly, my other project in the book is to reinterpret hmm. the bodhisattva um, to be a community, more of a collective-centered, justice-centered um, kind of project, you know, and really. And that problematizing really is about challenging some of these notions of peace and violence, you know, and identity, you know, that I think we get kind of hung up on that actually disrupts some of the ways that we can reduce violence, you know? Um, so bringing that, all of that together into practices, you know, again, it's about practice for me. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think I'll ever write a book necessarily that will not include practice yeah you know? that if you want to be different in the world you have to commit yourself to uh a, a practice yeah you know? well and you have so many wonderful practices almost at the end of i believe at the end of every chapter actually mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. those of you who are listening you know definitely grab your copy um, and explore those practices because they are really, you know, they essentially ground and, mm-hmm. and help one to integrate the, the teachings and, the, and what you explore in each uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, you know, to kind of close our conversation, I'd love to navigate into Queer Waters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm, you know, I, this is actually something that, you know, I'm really interested in because we're going to be publishing a journal exploring queer Dharma towards the end of the year. And, um, um, but I'm, you know, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about um, uh, how queerness, blackness, and the Dharma mm-hmm. kind of intersect for you, because you know, obviously, to um, independent but also intersecting dimensions of your experience or your queerness and your blackness. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm wondering how these dimensions have informed your experience and your interpretation of yeah. the Dharma, yeah. and then conversely, how the Dharma has kind of informed your experience of these, you know, expressions of your embodiment. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a conversation between blackness and queerness and dharma. And for I think for other folks, it's it's not so clear or there's a lot of ambiguity around that. Uh, and my practice is nothing but clarity, right? And so when I think about black, blackness, queerness, and dharma, I, I think about freedom. I think about fluidity. Um, I think about the most authentic expression of who I am. You know, um, for me, you know, and then early on for me, queerness was about fluidity. It was about movement. It was about um, authentic self-expression. Um, it was about loving in ways that seemed revolutionary, that seemed radical. And that was edgy and exciting and it still is, you know. Blackness for me was about freedom. It was about identity. It was about community. It was about connection. You know, um, it was about being on the side of anyone 
or any group who was marginalized and oppressed, right? You know, and then Dharma came in and kind of like embraced all of that. For me, Dharma was about liberation. And I, you know, and I believe we can't get free until we become ourselves, until we become human, you know, and that I really reject, you know, I don't even go there anymore, particularly in terms of like these kinds of moral or ethical um, kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say judgments, but this kind of ethical moral framework that, you know, practitioners try to exact around queerness, you know, that like, you know, queerness is morally, whatever, ethically, you know, wrong. Can you, say, can you say more about that? I'm not sure. Like, can you say more about how that shows up, the, this yeah. moralizing of queerness? Yeah, the moralizing and queerness of the Dharma, particularly coming out of um, really the monastic framework, you know, what we would call the Vinaya, you know, which is one of the major works that the Buddha um, taught, but like that kind of framework around particularly binary, mm. the, you know, binaryism, like male-female dynamics, you know, and I think sometimes, you know, particularly some Dharma communities, you know, actually maintain this kind of binary, you know, which I reject, you know, and I came through an orthodox system of practice where it was all about the binary, like yeah. men and women were separate, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, other, you sides, got of the room. <laughs> other yeah. sides of the room, you know, are your, your uh, Dharma name was either feminine or masculine, you know? And I was just like, well, this doesn't work for me <laughs> you know, um, at all. And nor does the silence around sexuality you know, um, it, it doesn't work with me, you know, um, nor does the exclusion and erasure of communities that are practicing transgressive practices like BDS, BDSM communities, the king communities and so forth. Like that doesn't work for me to erase those communities in, yeah. in Dharma. And so like, I am trying to make sure that there's language and that there are um, conversations happening, you know? Um, again, like particularly in this country, you know, I, I'll also say I was trained by Tibetan. So there's definitely not a language of queerness in Tibetan. No. <laughs> you know, um, at all. Um, I've had friends who've had to, to be kind of like, the, the, you know, they, they've been breaking ground and trying yeah. to create this, this dialogue within Tibetan culture. But, you know, there was nothing about that, you know, nothing about queerness, sexuality, anything, you know? Um, and so that lack of language and conversation becomes a moral ethical framework that becomes really strong. It is, it's almost invisible, mm. you know, it's invisible if you are not coming from those communities that are being silenced and erased within the practice, you know? Uh, so that's what I'm talking about. I see, okay. You know? And that comes out of, you know, in America that comes out of our Puritanism, that comes out of like Judeo-Christian upbringing, you know, Catholic, you know, as yeah. well, you know, we come, we bring the stuff into the Dharma and we try to replicate the rigidity and the binary you know, so when I am black and queer, that's naturally disrupting that. Yeah. For me, you know, so I just kind of sit within this, this dialogue, like my life is just a dialogue between these different identities. And it's all about getting free. And the more I get free, the more I begin to realize that there's been so much woundedness and, and, and violence around being forced to conform you know, into gender, into sexuality, into ways of thinking that were so antithetical to who and what I actually am. Mm -hmm. You know, um, even growing up, I had, it just, growing up, it just didn't make any sense for me that God would be so concerned with who you were in love with. Yeah. You know, if God created everyone, then he created me. <laughs> you know, in my life. So there are a lot of like, um, I would say contradictions within theology and Christianity growing up that like, I just wasn't cool with them just being there anymore. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, the, and the biggest liberation that I experienced in my life was freeing myself, you know, from those contradictions. Yeah. You know? um, it's scary. And I think for queer folks and trans folks listening, like it's, that's the toughest work I think that we'll ever do is to free ourselves from the conditionings that we grew up with and the further conditionings that we're getting every day from the world. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying because I mean, I, in the spiritual community that I, you know, practice in my, the Kula where, um, which is a, which is also a Tantra tradition, but Tantra can do tradition, you know, it's, there's certainly an openness there, but there's not a lot of queer folks, not a lot of people of color. Um, and in general, I think, you know, the spiritual communities in the United States are more often white and, you know, upper middle, you know, up middle class up to upper middle class and heteronormative in various ways. And so, you know, you coming out of like uh, the, the black church and then moving into this like mostly white kind of spiritual, you know, Buddhist community how did you begin to understand, uh, I guess, what is the ledge of freedom within the Dharma that allows you to see it as open to this conversation about your own intersectionality, um, rather than seeing it, you know, as just kind of another institutionalized expression of, of whiteness? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I had to claim that for myself. Mm-hmm. And to say that my dharma is separate from the institution of whiteness, you know, my so I was fortunate because my dharma practice was so personal. Like it wasn't about okay, where am I practicing? What's the institution saying? It's actually my practice early on, and it continues to be so. Is about okay, how am I feeling in this moment? You know, if the practice says. That I'm supposed to feel happy, that, or rather the goal is to feel happy, to feel free, to feel open, to feel vulnerable, to feel generous. You know, anything that I'm doing to, to cultivate that is dharmic. Mm-hmm. So anything that is creating rigidity, shutting down, judgments, whatever, hate, that's not dharmic. And so I just use that. I just use these experiences to guide me into what is dharmic and liberatory. And I say, you know, if you're teaching me something and I begin to shut down in a way that like, it's not a part of the practice, you know, because yeah, sometimes we react to teachings and our first initial thing is to shut down. If I can't work through that, then I say, okay, that dharma isn't for me. You know, um, it's, it's, you know, I think overall, as I sit and think about it, is really, I've just been so oriented towards what freedom is my whole life, yeah. you know, and all the ways in which we get distracted from freedom. And so when Dharma and Buddhism started talking about freedom, I was like, yeah, that's it. Complete freedom, like complete spaciousness, complete love, complete compassion you know, this complete compassion and love for myself, this complete compassion and love for others around me, to live within that space. You know, that's, that's, that's the Dharma. And it doesn't matter. I say this all the time, too. Is, is, I, don't, I don't care what you believe in. You know, I don't want the world to be Buddhist, you know, or anything. Like, I want people to be happy and to reduce violence. And however you do that, great, that's Dharma. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that's dharmic to me. No matter what you're calling yourself, right? You know, it's like for me. And dharma doesn't necessarily mean Buddhism. It just means truth. It means law. Yeah, you know, and it, it's, it, that's what I mean by dharma. You know, often my dharma is I don't, I'm not even thinking about Buddhism when I say dharma. I just think about that's the teaching that helps us to get free and to reduce violence and to be happy. And I found I have found those teachings everywhere. You know, you know, from my Hindu Vedic tradition, you know, from Tantric Buddhism, from Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, um, from all kinds of places, from indigenous ancestral practices, you know, Native American practices. I just, once you get tuned into Dharma, you find that Dharma is happening everywhere. Yeah. And that's exciting. 
Yeah, I love that part of the book where you talk about wisdom texts yeah. and, you, and you offer a kind of way of looking at wisdom texts, which embraces like, you know, if you can find wisdom in this film yeah. or in, in this fiction novel, yeah. you know, and that kind of leveling and kind of democratizing of wisdom, I think is really powerful. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about, uh, as we close, uh, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing your time with me. I want to um, read something. It's a quote from your book about um, the uh, kind of Tantra as a, as a way of, you know, embodying your intersectionality or how that's, how that's assisted you in that process and in your relationship with the Dharma. Mm -hmm. So you say, I identify as a Tantric Buddhist teacher and minister as a way to more authentically embody my intersectionality as a black queer man in a tradition where I am underrepresented. Yet beyond that, the concept of Tantra offers me the freedom to weave together practices that help me to express my authenticity within this body that I have been born into while doing the work to experience mental and spiritual freedom. So I guess my question is, do you think that Tantra, um, as you understand it, is inherently queer? Yes. Okay, can you yes. talk a little bit about how that, how that connection happens for you? Yeah. For me, Tantra, it's not about the binary, it's not about rigidity. You know, Tantra is a movement that actually is about being countercultural. Yeah. So whatever is yeah. dominance, it's the opposite. You know, Tantra challenges dominance. Yeah. Intentionally, because we, you know, we understand as Tantra practitioners that like dominance actually keeps us rigid and it keeps us really far away. <laughs> From yeah. the you know from consciousness from the expansiveness of consciousness so tantra inherently disrupts dominance mm. you know in the same way I believe because my queerness is politicized as well it's like I'm politically and that's why I started identifying as a queer man you know because being gay being a gay man was so limiting <laughs> you know for me I was like oh you know <laughs> like, like I need more. You know, and so queerness became the expansion, became the fluidity. And when I came into Tantra, I was like, oh, like this is, this is like, you know, so Tantra just like completely, you know, embraced queerness, you know, because again, Tantra is so aligned with the feminine aspect, where it's yeah. just like, it's just moving, it's dancing, it's fluid, mm -hmm. it's light, it's passion, it's, it's warm, like all this stuff is happening in Tantra. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, I just think if we're not being disrupted in Tantra, you know, then Tantra isn't working. Yeah. We're doing something else. And this is why Tantra is not and should not actually be this kind of like popular movement. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be like a household thing because it's just, it's not, not everyone's ready yeah. for that movement, you know? And, and, and when we think that we're doing Tantra and making it really accessible, then I think maybe it's not. It's being so diluted. Tantra. It's being diluted. Mm. I love that. I absolutely love that kind of the idea of Tantra as queer. I think it's just yeah. such a powerful um, idea that I would love for somebody to work out in an article <laughs> for the queer Dharma issue. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, Lamarad, I, this has been such a pleasure. Is there anything that, you know, you'd like to close with in terms of, you know, anything we've talked about, the role of anger, queerness, mm -hmm. uh, the Dharma, anything you want to share with our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I'll just say this, this kind of concluding thing is just that, you know, I, I'm just trying to get free. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get free through my body, mm -hmm. through my intersections, through my identity. I want to embrace the earth and and in embracing the earth, I want to experience heaven, mm -hmm. you know, and I have to be willing to struggle to do that. And it's not, none of this is easy, you know, and I just want to just, you know, just reiterate that it's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be glamorous. I have lost a lot, but on the other hand, I've gained a lot. You know, um, and you have to be willing to lose something, you know, yeah. to really get free and maybe lose your comfort. Mm. Maybe it's, it's the price of the ticket, we mm -hmm. would say. You know? Get so, uncomfortable. Yeah. So, uh, Lamara, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to share with the listeners? Any kind of workshops or? Yeah. or... 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I would say first and foremost, just stay connected to my website, lamarad.com. Um, and everything is posted there. I'll be offering um, a kind of six-week six course on love and rage where I'll just be, you know, giving some commentary, walking people through practices, you know. Um, so a lot of people have been asking for that kind of foundation. Um, the audio book will come out later this fall as well, um, too. So, so those are the big things that are coming up, yeah. Excellent. And then watch out for your next book. Do you have a title for that one yet? I'm working on a title, um, but next book will be out next year. Definitely, okay. hopefully. <laughs> you never know how that process is going to go. Never know. Well, we'll look out for it. And, uh, you know, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for writing this book. And um, once again, everyone who's listening, I've been speaking with Lama Rod Owens, and he is the uh, co-author of Radical Dharma with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams as um who many of you are familiar with. And then the book he just published is Love and Rage, The Path of, of Liberation Through Anger. Lama Rod, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it.